Hello, Tom Kitts. In the introduction to the show, uh, we've listed a few of your many uh, accomplishments in the area of academic studies and popular music. And I would also like to add to that, you do still teach as well, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah, I love teaching. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's I, you know, people always ask me about retiring, and I, why? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's 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 pleasurable, and it's you know, it's you close that door in a classroom, as you know, and you you're in control of everything. Yeah, it's yours. I don't have any of that control anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I wonder then, do you understand yourself to be an example of the adage, "If you want something done, ask a busy person." Yeah, I kind of guess so. You know what? And, and even at school, at the university, sometimes, you know, I'll come home and tell my wife, I, I just signed off this committee. And she'll say, well, what'd you do that for? Don't you have enough to do? And I said, well, they asked me. Yeah, right. <laughs> you could say no, you know, you're allowed to say no. So yes, sort of. When it comes to writing about music and stuff, I do kind of like it. I can't say I like all the, uh, the stuff that goes along with writing. And it can be very frustrating. Many parts can be frustrating. You know, I just finished this book on Richie Fure, and I was talking to him, and I said, Richie, it was, it was really a pleasure to do this. And I said, well, mostly it was a pleasure. <laughs> Sometimes it was absolute hell, but mostly it was a pleasure. So do you ever turn down offers? Um, do you ever turn down projects? You know, I actually have. But I got to tell you, I'm trying to think of what. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember what I turned down, but occasionally I do turn something down. I don't know. I can't remember what, but I have. It just seemed like it'd be just, just too much for me to do right now, especially when I'm working on a book, because that takes so much concentration. You know, it's hard to take on writing even a small article or something. Okay, so I guess maybe we should first establish how you came to the notion that you could blend your passion for uh, pop music and rock and roll with your academic loves and desires. I can actually remember the day. <laughs> I'm not sure I'll have the right year, but I think it was late 1995. I just uh, finished my first book, which is on uh, an American dramatist. My background's American literature. It was on American Dramatist, and I was hunting around for a new topic. I was going to do something on an actor that this dramatist had worked for. And then all of a sudden, I was reading the Times. It was a Sunday morning, the Arts and Leisure section of the New York Times. And I'll never forget, my son was about four at the time. My daughter was one. They're crawling around, and I see in the paper an ad for Ray Davies performing in New York, a solo show, one-man show he's doing. And it just hit me. It was like, that's what I should write about. I've been listening to this guy's music all my life. I always brag about what a great songwriter he is. Why don't I do a book on him if I'm looking for something to write about? And, and, and it really all started with that ad in the Sunday Times for Ray Davies' one-man show. And I just got this idea, you know, an epiphany. Hey, you can write a book on Ray Davies and talk about and write what you've been talking about for all these years. Tell you the truth, everything just took off from there. That's wonderful that you can remember exactly what it was. When you began this part of your development, your career, what was the reaction to other people in your field at your university? Because uh, I know uh, from my experience, writing about rock and roll was seen as a bit frivolous. Right, exactly. I did not really have that. I have to be very honest with you. I was coming up for tenure in, I believe it was a year or two, but I already had my book out on the American literature, so I was pretty set there. 
I remember telling my chair, who loves classical music and collected guns, that I wanted to write about Ray. I was going to do this book on Ray Davies. And he said, who's that? And I told him, he says, well, that sounds good. He says, go ahead, you know, try it. Whatever we can support you in, go ahead and go for it. Some of the senior members supported me. He said, yeah, it's a great idea. Try it. I, even my dean thought it was a good idea. So I can't say I have had that prejudice that a lot of people had, especially in North America. I think they were a lot more open to it in England and Europe before we were. I never thought of that, but it's probably true. Yeah, I think so. Again, it's, it's already come out, but we share a great passion for the kinks, you and I. And, I know. Uh, I, I'm just curious about how that passion developed for you in New York, where you're surrounded by so much different music, so much music that defines the city, and you reach out beyond New York to England, where the kinks are not are nothing if not sort of passionately English. So there's times when I never knew what the hell they were That's talking right. about. So how did you come to it? It's really interesting because you gave me this task of selecting five favorite songs. They all have something in common. And I, and I think about why they're my favorite songs. I mean, yes, obviously the music just grabs me. And that's a very visceral effect that it has. Those chords in Hoochie Coochie Man or the, the joy of Poco's, you know, good feeling to know and others. But all those songs also appeal strongly to my imagination. England was a place I wanted to desperately go to for a long, long time. You know, growing up with the British Invasion, You Really Got Me was one of the first records I bought. The first was actually I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. England was in my imagination, and that song, Waterloo Sunset, just really grabbed me. That was the song. I said, wow, this is England, right? And this song, real or not, who the hell knows? But, you know, as a kid, it, was, it certainly seemed to grab me. That was England. These songs, all that I picked, they all appeal to my imagination in a strange way. And I was thinking about the Poco song, Good Feeling No, where Furet sings about Colorado mountains, I could see your distant skies. That line still gives me chills. And you know something? I don't even like the mountains. I don't like to go to the mountains. We're, we're about two hours from Woodstock where my wife has a home. I don't even like to go there that much. I go like three or four times a year with her, only because she's there. The mountains don't grab me, but that song does, because there's something about how it hits my imagination, just like the Kinks did, that really, really just you know, resonates and really invigorates me. That's sort of it. I don't know how to answer it other than that, but that, that's what it does. It grabs my imagination. And eventually I went to England. I've been to England a number of times with you once. Yes. And, you know, I, I love England. In fact, thinking about the kinks when I first started, when we first met about 25 years ago, yeah. uh, you were doing a, a, a paper that I wanted to see on kitchen sink films. Right. And I said, gee, that's like the kinks. Let me go see if this guy's got anything to say. And you did have something to say, uh, and we go. got to be friends as a result of that. I remember talking to you afterwards saying, I went to your session because of the kinks. You know, I'm into that, and your face lit up. You were into the kinks, and, you know, one thing led to another, and here we are all these years later talking about them Talking still. about the kinks still, yeah. For those uh, who have not read anything by Tom, like the Ray Davies biography, the John Fogarty biography, first of all, shame on you. Why is that? Uh, well, for not reading your stuff, uh, not, not on, you, oh, on, people. On, on people who oh. haven't read it. Uh, um, I can safely say that one of the things I find about your biographies uh, is you're never unkind, you're never mean to the characters. 
rather you seek to understand musicians who are complex and not always appreciated for their personalities. Is that the appeal to you, is that other people see them as, you know, grumpy old men or something? It's a conscious thing, sort of. I don't know if that's the reason. They are humans, and this great music comes from somewhere. Despite the way they could be nasty as human beings, the way they could be unfair to the people around them, but, you know, they are human, and a lot of these things come from different places, different things they've experienced in their youth, whether it's not having the greatest parents or father in the cases of Fogarty and I guess even Ray Davies. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think I do try to look at them sympathetically and try to find that place where the, the music comes out. And, and like a lot of great artists, the best part of themselves comes out in their art, not in their personalities. I think fundamentally, most of the guys I wrote about are really, really good people in some ways. I mean, Fogarty, was, Fogarty wouldn't give me an interview. Yeah. And not only that, he forbade everybody working for him to give me an interview. I was not to go near everyone. They threatened me with cease and desist or something. I said, you know what? Richie Fiore was the opposite. He gave me tons of time and let me talk to all the people around him. With Fogarty, who is, no one gets along, of course, with the old guys from Credence, they were more than willing to talk. Oh, I so they bet talked they were. a long time. They were great. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so funny with with, both, with them and the guys with uh, Ray Davies. They all start off with this kind of thing like, you know, we're so glad you're doing this because these guys are tremendous artists and people should know what good artists they are. Within five minutes, they're telling me a nasty story. <laughs> yeah. uh, any you'd like to share? I became friends through this book with Peter Quaife, the original bass player right, in the case. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he visited me in Brooklyn, and my wife and I visited him in Denmark, and it was, it was really sad that he passed away and, and all this stuff. But anyway, he told me, this isn't too bad. It's like, I, I, oh, God, they all rushed in my head at once. He said when they were recording Dedicated Follower of Fashion, the band loved it. This is it. This is the take, Ray. We got it. And Ray said, I'm still not happy. So what does Ray do? He takes the tape, puts it on the floor, and throws a match on it so it burns away, and they have to start from the beginning again. Or, or a better one than that, they were uh, playing Monopoly, and Ray did not like to lose, especially to his fellow kings, because, of course, Ray was superior to them. And Peter said, when Ray went bankrupt, he made them count back. I forgot how many moves, like 15 moves to make sure everything was done accurately. <laughs> I said, you put up with that? You let a guy in a stupid game count you back 15 moves? He said, yep, because I could see he was driving Ray crazier than it was driving me and the others. What can you tell us about uh, Richard Foray, for those who don't know about him? Yeah, here's what happened. I was working on this book. The Routledge Companion, which you wrote for, The yes. Routledge Companion, to popular yeah. music in Yuba. You did an article on the blues. It was brilliant. But anyway, <laughs> uh, I was working on that book, and I got a call from, I got an email from Penn State University Press that they were starting a series of history, a series on the history of American music. And they said, before you start another book or sign on with someone else, let us know if you have any interest in this. And I just kind of blurted out, Richie Fure, I said, is one of the underrated guys in American music. And never got the acclaim that, that he should have. And they said, okay, write up a proposal. I wrote up a proposal. The next thing you know, the book will be out in the spring. But that was three years ago, so maybe not, maybe not the next thing you know. But anyway, Richie uh, started with the Buffalo Springfield. Right. He and Stills were friends. Uh, they were friends in New York. They both came to Greenwich Village, got in this band called the Cafe of Go-Go Singers. They hit it off, both extremely talented. 
Stills goes to California, and he writes on a piece of paper. His manager said, write on a piece of paper the guys you want to form a band with. He wrote two names, Richie Fure and Neil Young. So he called Richie, come out to California. Richie flies out to California, makes him wait at the airport like five, six hours. And uh, Richie says, so who's in this band? Who are we with? Still said, well, we've got two members now, you and me. <laughs> so then Neil Young came down, they got him on, and they started Buffalo Springfield, this classic American band. And then from there, they broke up because they just, they just could not get along. No. It was just too many, too many big egos. I mean, working with Stills and Young is a tough thing. So Fure started Poco. Great little band he had, but they never had that big record. And I didn't realize this really at the time. In the 70s, I was listening to FM music. I wasn't into the AM singles market. But as I found from talking to musicians over the years, you need that hit single. That one hit single can really you know, just get your name out there and get people to at least look at the album. And from there, you're kind of set, but you do need the hit single. Richie never had that. He went on. He tried to form a super group with J.D. Souther and Chris Hillman. Do you right. remember Souther, Hillman, and Fure? Yeah, I do. Went nowhere. There was no chemistry there at all. No chemistry at all. They just, they're better friends now than they were in the band, believe it or not. They actually talk now. They've had lunch together over the last few years. But they just did not get along. It was like three guys and you know, what do you call it? A round circle singing their own songs. Your turn, my turn, their turn. No chemistry. Failure. It was a failure. So Richie then went in to become a minister and wrote some uh, really, one, I think some of his best albums is religious music, and I'm, I'm hardly a religious guy, you know, but he's written in the 90s, he released these two two albums, actually 97, I think 2005, if I remember, but these two albums with these religious songs that are just great, right in the uh, country, country rock tradition and echoing things from Appalachia and country music, fantastic albums. But uh, he still performs today, yeah. still tours, and uh, does a solo show, and he's still really he's a, he's a good act. I've always felt bad that it's his voice that makes a lot of the early Neil Young, Buffalo Springfield songs sound so great, like nowadays Clancy can't even sing and things like that, but people exactly. think it's Neil Young. Yeah, Neil Young. Well, he sang a couple of Neil, Neil songs. At first, they were a real group. They just said he sang them better, and then, when they, of course, later on, their producers wanted to sing it. Yeah. Uh, and what's on the last album, On Our Way Home? On Our Way Home, a great Neil Young song, yeah. Richie Sang. I warned you That's I'd good. ask you this question. Do you see yourself as a pioneer in the advancement of rock music studies as an academic pursuit? I don't, I don't think so. I really don't. All I'm doing is really taking some of the skills I learned at uh, NYU, where I went to graduate school, and just kind of applying them to rock music. I don't know if that makes me a pioneer. I don't I don't really, I really don't think so. I mean, it's really nice that you even ask. If I could think of a way that I could kind of fudge that a little and, and work it, if I could think of a way to work that, I, I would, but I don't really think I can. It's nice to be asked, but I, I, don't, I really don't think of myself as a pioneer at all. Some of the theorists as more pioneers, guys like Simon Frith. I just think of popular music and society, the journal, or rock music studies have come a long yeah. way under your uh, editorship getting a lot of good submissions too though yeah. i have to say and thanks for saying that and and uh, you know uh, they take up a lot of a lot of time i you know i edited it with gary burns uh, mm -hmm. from northern illinois i think a lot of times but the uh, journals have come a long way yeah. i was surprised to read we now have a submission rate in popular music and society i think an acceptance rate of something like one out of eight wow i was saying we do six issues a year 
I mean, five issues a year. Five, sorry, five yeah. issues a year. Wow. So, I, you know, it's getting hard to get in there. In a nutshell, what do you feel are the benefits of critical studies of popular music? What do you tell your students about why they should do this? I'll give you a couple things. I teach a course. Right now I'm teaching a course writing about popular music. And they write about whatever kind of form they're into. And I think if you do this right and you really study these songs, first of all, you're going to appreciate the art more and more. And I know you've done this. You listen to a song, and by the 10th time, all of a sudden, you start to notice some little small things in there. Maybe a greater appreciation for the bass line develops that you never paid attention to before. Or some little, some little piano riff that surfaces three-quarters of the way through the song. So the more you listen, the more you appreciate this this, this pop music, and you realize that it's pretty good, and it's pretty invigorating, and it, can, it really, as I say, it appeals to my imagination and stimulates my imagination. In addition to that, further study, I'm thinking of the, the Prime Minister of Jamaica, when Bob Marley was still alive, so going back, he once said, you want to know what's happening in Jamaica? Just listen to reggae. Listen to the reggae and follow the lyrics, and you'll know what's going on in Jamaica. And I think a lot of ways we could say that today. You listen to the lyrics, you find out what's on people's minds. So a study of the lyrics is very revealing about our culture, our culture at this particular point in time. And again, also when you see some clever wordplay, you get to appreciate it more. In fact, I'm going to tell you with Richie Fure, one of the things in this book I didn't realize is how good a lyricist he was. I, I, I really just never thought of him as a lyricist. He's certainly not like a Bob Dylan or Neil Young, but they're very, very well done songs, highly polished little pebbles, so smooth, so concise. And I said, I didn't, I, I told him I didn't realize that he was such a good lyricist. He says, you know, I work so hard on those lyrics. No one knows. <laughs> and I'm really happy you said that. We get, uh, we get our imagination stimulated. We find out the great quality of work that's in a lot of these songs. And we learn a lot about our culture. That's like a real school teacher thing to do, isn't it? Summarize yeah. it like that. <laughs> well, but it's true. I also wonder if you think that it allows students to see value in their, um, in their music. I remember being at a conference where everyone was talking about Kendrick Lamar, and I thought, who the hell is yes. that? I went back and asked my students, and I got the education. The study of popular cultural, I, I think, in music, I see, I see as being a chance for students to see and promote value in what is important and passionate for them. That's right, to appreciate their own music and to advocate for it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really funny. I remember, I always tell this to my, to my students, you know, I said, I don't want you guys to be like any, any, any of some of my old friends. And I was sitting one night in a bar with a friend, and he said, yeah, and, and Jay-Z came on. I have like Jay-Z, and I like Kendrick Lamar too, by the way. Jay-Z came on, and he said, yeah, see this stuff they're playing today? Not like what we had, you know. We had the Beatles and Stone. Our stuff's going to last forever. This stuff? be gone another couple of years. You know, that kind of cynicism yeah. is just so unfounded. And let's face it, the Beatles and Stones and these bands we're talking about last today because we're still alive. The music of our youth never leaves us. Uh-huh. I don't know if they're going to be alive 50 years from now. Uh-huh. I don't know what timeless is. Yeah. can't worry about what timeless is. I'm not going to be able to find out. Yeah. But I do try to help them kind of validate their tastes mm-hmm. by studying it. Yeah, I think that's a real uh, strength in studying music at an academic level. (laughs) To become more critical. Yeah. It's a way of teaching critical thinking. Because, you know, sometimes we look at some of the stuff we like that it really wasn't that good. No. (laughs) You know? (laughs) I know.
I just let it slide by. Yeah. You already mentioned that you get to pick five songs for this uh, hour uh, presentation. Mm-hmm. I wonder what the joys of loving the New York Dolls are. It's the most obscure of the music you chose, I think. I just wondered why the New York Dolls. First of all, I love the Dolls. Love you, you know, Morrissey was the president of the UK fan club for the New York Dolls. I did not know, you know that. that. No. Yeah, you know, yeah. Here's the thing with the Dolls. I was 17. And, you know, I live in New York City in Staten Island, and we, we used to buy the Village Voice at that time, we had to buy it. And we'd read all these articles about this great band, the New York Dolls, and they looked kind of strange. And it was in August, I remember, and they were playing Max's Kansas City. So a friend of mine said, you know, let's, why don't we go and check them out? We're reading all this stuff on the Dolls. And I went to see them in small Max's Kansas City. The club was upstairs from a... It looked like a cheap steakhouse downstairs. <laughs> it was also Max, one of Max's. We go up there, we sit there, very plain stage, and these five guys come out. It looked like they were all hair, heels, and volume. It was so loud. And they started with Hoochie Coochie Man. Ah. And we were blown away. I think we were frightened. Look at these guys. It was a small place, about 15 feet from us. They had high heels on, on platform heels, dressed as women, mostly or seemingly. They just blew us away. The next day, I went out to EJ Corvette and bought their record, their first album. And I've been listening to them ever since and seeing them whenever I can. The last show I saw at CBGB's was the New York Dolls. Right before it closed, they were playing there. They reunited for that. I've always been a fan. They're hard-rocking. They're what rock and roll should be. They're sloppy. They're loud. They're joyful. They're mean. they got all these different emotions running in. And they're fun. They're really fun. A lot of people don't get my taste for the dolls, but I think they're magnificent. And I'm a big fan of David Johansson and oh, all yeah. he's done over the years. I, I, I think that guy's got an encyclopedic mind when it comes to music. He knows everything. Well, I'm going to stop and buy a New York Dolls album on the way home after this interview. <laughs> check out check out that first album. That's a masterpiece. First album. It's a deal. You know, it's, it's... You'll be getting a long email from me in a couple of weeks. Please do. Loud, chaotic. It's New York City. They capture New York City. That's what I wondered. Is it like something about home for you there? Absolutely. Not only that, the five guys, all from New York City, or at least raised here, and all from the outer boroughs, not Manhattan. Yeah. One guy grew up like three miles from me. I never know him, two or three miles. I know exactly where he's from, his neighborhood. David Johansson's from Staten Island. A couple guys from Brooklyn, one in the Bronx. Another guy from Queens, that kind of thing. And they kind of invaded Manhattan. They just kind of took it over. They were just loud coming in, and there was nothing nothing polite about them. You know, their appearance was strange, and they just took it over. I'm going to ask you some questions that there are no wrong answers to. Oh, good. I like those. It can be one word. It can be longer. It can be a dissertation. You do with these what you feel, Tom. Okay. If I speak too long, just cut me off. You know, because I can't see your look. With students, I can see see the look in their face when I talk too much. No, no. Go ahead. (laughs) Digital or analog? Digital. Digital? That's it? You know what? I, I still listen to CDs. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I still listen to CDs. Yeah. I, I have Spotify. I have all that stuff. There's just something about holding the CD that I like. Yeah. And I like it better than vinyl. Oh, do you I'm really? Not, I'm not, I have. 
Well, I haven't got caught, in a, caught up in the, the whole sweep of the vinyl movement. Politics, I, you know, I, how much space do I have? Yeah. I mean, true. We have we have a nice big house in Brooklyn here. We got we had four kids. They're all gone. So I got I got space, but I, I don't know. CDs just seem easy to store. Not a great answer. Oh, it is a great answer. I mean, uh, starting a vinyl collection right now would oh. be a pain in the ass. I already bought it on vinyl. I bought it on CD. I can download. I got to go back and buy another copy on vinyl. It's bad enough all these anniversary collections that I get sucked into. <laughs> okay, early '60s British invasion. Or late '60s Laurel Canyon folk rock. British invasion. Yeah, so, absolutely. Okay, and you can really go with this. I hope New York or anywhere else in the whole damn world. See you, but you must know me. Oh my God, New York. There's no place like New York. Well, I got married to my second wife, Lisa. Whom you know. I said, you got to know one thing, I'm never moving out of New York. <laughs> this, this is where I belong. This is my place. I have connect, strong connections in four of the boroughs, not much for the Bronx, and I'm not a Yankee fan. But, Ooh. you know, I work in Queens, in Manhattan a lot, lived in Manhattan for like 16 years, and been in Brooklyn the last, I don't know, since 91, was that 30 years or so? No, I'm never leaving New York. There's no place like it. I like having a subway near. I do like the beach, so I will leave to go to the beach. I certainly like to travel, but I'm always coming home to New York. One of the things I've already noticed through the first half hour of our discussion is all the places you've been. I mean, you can go out to CBGBs, and you can go out to places, and you can see big acts regularly, right. which, which has got to be a, a bonus that most of us don't have. We just bought tickets to Pavement. You know Pavement from the 90s? Good band. Yeah, I don't, I don't know them yeah, they're performing like a mile away from us. We'll walk. The show is next October. They did this at Eagle for years. Yeah. So they're getting your money way in advance. I'm not thrilled about, but yeah. anyway. Before the pandemic, I wanted to see Al Stewart, so I had to take a ferry to the United States. So it's not as easy for us. <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're really lucky with that. You hop on a subway and we're there. The subways are great. You know, they, well, I, I say they're great, but that's one of my New York things. Yeah. My wife doesn't think they're so great. Yeah. But, uh, writing or editing? Writing. Writing is, I find, much more satisfying when I'm done. Both are hard work. Yeah, no, definitely writing. You know, writing, you start off, feel good about starting. Then you get in that middle. It's just a lot of hard work and digging and everything else. But when you're done, I, it's a great feeling. When a, when a book comes out or an article comes out for the first time, it's just a, and you see it for the first time, it's just a wonderful feeling. I get much more satisfaction from writing. It's the work it must ta- must have taken to edit, was it 40, 41 chapters in the uh, Rutledge Yeah, Companion? something like that. Oh. Yeah, that was a lot. Thank God I had, you know, Nick Baxter Moore, yeah. a Canadian. Yes. Uh, good guy. Help me. He did it with me. We worked together on it, and we worked very well together. We're very close friends. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he, he came down here. I went up there. He's in uh, uh, Hamilton, outside of Toronto. Right. No, yeah. St. Catharines. He's Saint in Catharines. South St. Catharines. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, I went up there. He came down here. We talked on the phone a lot. It was all the things when it ended. He says, what do we do now that we don't have to call each other every week? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't, I can't believe how fast you guys were. Oh. I know. I'd send yeah. stuff off, though, and it'd be back, like, in a week. Whoa. Sometimes you want a little more time, you know? Yeah. Sometimes I send something in, and I know it's coming back with some editor's comments. 
you know, we all hope for the same thing. We, we hope the, the, the reader will send back, like, this is the greatest thing I've read, read, read published as is. It never happens. No. First thing I ever published got published without a change. And I got really pissed, I got pissed off when they, the next time they said, oh, we got this long list of changes we want. Oh, oh, it didn't last time, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what that says now with the Fure book, it's out to, to two expert readers, as the editor said, who likes what I did. They're looking at the manuscript, and you know they're going to find something they'll want me to change, add to, whatever. Hopefully it will make the book stronger. I'm sure it will, but still, I'd like it better if they just said it's great as is. What is uh, your next big project? My next big project, you know what? A small project. What I'm doing is working with Nick about an article on band chemistry and how that's affected bands over the years. Bands have talked an awful lot about the chemistry, how when the original one original member leaves, the whole chemistry changes, as in the kinks. Uh, I remember Peter Quaife telling me, I said, gee, Ray was really upset when you left. He said, no, he wasn't. He was glad I left because now he has no one else to challenge him except his brother who he just beats up. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I wanna, we want to study how, ba- how these bands are affected by band chemistry because it's a very fragile thing. It has a lot to do with what comes out in the music. So that's kind of a small project. That'll be, uh, that'll be uh, you know, an article somewhere. Other than that, I'm not sure. I don't know if I want to start a big project right away. Yeah. I think I want to take a little time off. I want to do some reading. You know, when you work on a book, it's hard to read something oh, else. Oh, absolutely. What you do is read everything connected with what you're working on. Well, that's about all you read, and that's that stuff you have to teach at school. You reread that. But I want to just take a little time and read some stuff I want to read. You've already answered this in lots of ways, but I just wondered how Ray Davies and John Fogarty have reacted to your biographies. Fogarty has no reaction. Okay. Ray has told me, because when I see Ray, it's almost, it's really funny. It's, you'd, you'd think we were old friends. I haven't seen him in a few years now, but he, sometimes in New York, you'd run into him. I ran into him in London, or I see him at a book signing, something like that. You'd think we were old friends. He calls me the academic. <laughs> um, I asked him, so Ray, what do you think of the book? You know, I haven't gotten around to reading it. Uh, I looked at some parts. It looks pretty good. I think you're on to something with this, but very... Very vague. Very I do think he's read it. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I do think he's read it. You know, a lot of these guys read everything, but don't like to comment on it. Don't like to say they did. I know when I saw Ray Davies, I had a copy of your book, but I didn't have it with me, and I wish I would have had it and walked up to him and said, could you sign this? Oh, yeah, he would have signed it. Yeah, oh, yeah, he would have, yeah. He would have signed it, and I think he would have said something nice about me. (laughs) You know? I mean, the book's pretty good. It's pretty favorable. When you told me you were writing a book about Richard Furry, I wondered if he had a brother he fought with. I just wondered if there was no, a theme going. No, no that's, it. that's good, though. Right. No, no, brother. He, he gets along with most people, but he does. He has, he's had his fights over the years with bandmates. The other thing I was curious about, someone actually, when I told them I was going to be talking to you, um, asked me about this, and I sort of took their idea and turned it into a question. How have the true believers... The real fans, the ones who really love these guys, how have they responded to your work? That's a good one, because it's really funny. Fans are, are a funny lot, because they all think, we all, we, I should say, we all think we own the guy. So I've written things about Davies and Fogarty. I've had fans say things like, yeah, but you know what he didn't say, and you know what he missed, <laughs> and you know what he should have said about that song. They like to kind of 
take a one-upmanship approach, you know? Like, they know something I didn't know. And sometimes I knew it, maybe I didn't. There was some minor detail. They love to do that. They'll say, it's okay, but. It's that kind of thing. It's okay, but. Yeah. You know, he should have. He didn't. He didn't know. You know, and I think this is a better song than that. That kind of thing. They want to somehow up them. But I will say this. I've gone to a lot of kink events. I'm treated very respectfully. I'll tell you the truth. My, my wife said, gee, you're like a celebrity at these things. That's kind of nice. I said, yeah, it's one time I feel like a celebrity. <laughs> and the people are very nice. I mean, there was one person, I mean, we were at one thing, they were doing a preview of a documentary on the kink somewhere over there. And this one woman kept staring at me. And my wife said, what's the deal with the woman over there? She keeps looking at you. I said, I don't know. I really don't know who she is. And finally she came over and said, you're Tom Kitts, right? You wrote the book on Ray Davis. And she had a copy and I signed it. But uh, that's about the only place I ever feel moderately like a celebrity. But uh, So mostly it's been favorable. But, yeah, they do like to point out errors or things they disagree with. Yeah, well, I remember when we were in England at the same time, and we went up to uh, Cambridge on the train. And the train was just loaded with people that I had never anticipated. And that was like huge Kinks fans who knew all yeah. about them, like they knew their astrological signs and uh, what oh, shoe God, size they yeah. had. I was like, holy mackerel, I'm just a trifler here. I know. Uh, and when you don't mess, see, that's what they like to get when you don't know that stuff. They like yeah. to say, how come it wasn't in the book? You probably didn't know it. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter what a shoe size is. I yeah. mean, you know. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's the way people are. Uh, okay, so I'm going to do something. I'm going to ask you if you could have picked eight songs for this. Oh. What would the other three have been? Oh, definitely Penny Lane. Penny Lane? Oh, good. Definitely Penny Lane by the Beatles. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I tend to think in terms of groups and yeah, what groups enough. I might like. Let's see. I, geez, I had, a, I had a list of about 20 songs on there, and of course I'm not thinking of them now. What else? What else would I have picked? Um, the Clash. Oh, good. I probably, definitely, I love The Clash. Um, Spanish Bombs. Oh, excellent. On uh, London Calling, which was one of my all-time favorite albums. Definitely would have gone with The Clash. Uh, let's see. You know what? I'm thinking of Dylan. And if I had to pick, this will probably change the next time we talk. But I'm thinking right now of a Dylan song, Romance in Durango. Very nice. It's just a brilliance. It tells such a great story. You know, melodrama, melodramatic and all it is. Guy gets shot out there in the desert on the run. This poor girl's with him, picking up his gun. I mean, it's just a great story. That or maybe Mississippi. Okay. You know, I, I, I love Dylan. I'm going to see him. In fact, talking about coming through New York. He's going to be here, not this coming Sunday, the following Sunday. Oh, excellent. I'm jealous. I, I got to see Dylan every few years. Otherwise, I feel it's, <laughs> it's like going to church for me. Yeah. Well, he's a different Dylan every few years, too, isn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. I, some of the greatest shows I've ever seen have been Dylan, and some of the worst shows I've seen have been Dylan. Yeah, I, I could say exactly the same. Tom Kitts, I've got to thank you for spending some time with us, for all the work you've done on behalf of uh, popular music in the academic world. It's been great for me. It's uh, My two subscriptions are still uh, to uh, journals you edit, so <laughs> thank you oh, very great. much. Um, it's too bad well, about I, Seattle. Yeah, really. You know, I, I'm missing that. Yeah. I, I want to see people again. we got to get together. You should come down and visit New York. All righty. Um, but this is great, Jim. I always enjoy talking to you. It was a real pleasure. Yep. Thanks a lot. We'll be seeing you soon, if no other way than on Zoom.
Okay, good enough, Jim. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.